there, Shopamaniacs. You're listening to another episode of the Shop Talk Show podcast, all about front-end web design and development and maybe a little history lesson here today. I'm Dave Rupert. With me is Chris Coyer. Hey, Chris, how are you doing today? Did I introduce well, myself twice? Dave, <laughs> did you say I'm Dave? A little out of it. I might have said Dave twice. Hey, this back from vacation. We're doing names <laughs> more than I could use. We need two. We need an intern Dave and a, and a new yeah. Dave. Old Dave. One for the soundboard. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I was wondering when you said front end development. I'm like, you know what? Actually, in the you know the early days, there was no such thing. It's just the just the webmaster. I, sometimes I think I don't know how this actually went down. We need somebody to actually research this at some point. But I feel like in the early days of Dan Denny's conference, front end design comp, that it was like weird. I was like, what is that? In the very earliest one. Hmm. Yeah. Not that Dan hmm. invented it, although, you know, Dan, Dan could use some credit. Anyway, we haven't even introduced the guest yet who's sitting right here. Jay Hoffman, Jason Hoffman. Which one do you prefer for the show? Let's go with Jay. Hey, folks. Jay Hoffman. Fantastic. Hey. Thanks for joining us, Jay. How's yeah, it going? Yeah, thanks for having me. Big fan. Cheers. Yeah, you know, we know our paths have crossed paths many times. You've written extensively about web history, which we can't avoid talking about today. You know, you do that on your own site and have a newsletter on CSS Tricks. There's a 10-part series with that, you know, starts way back. I mean, you literally did it in chronological order as we were doing that together and then famously uh, spoken by Jeremy Keith too who just just took it upon himself to do the the audio version of it so cool yeah I owe a lot to Jeremy actually he was one of my I think he's in the first 10 subscribers to the to the newsletter so nice yes yeah Jeremy Keith thank you has a unabashed love for the web and you know he talks about old time stuff and new time stuff i will mention you know this made me think about it we just had um you know jeffrey zeldman and eric meyer on the show the other day and i was like you know what i want to talk about some new stuff because y'all aren't dead you know geez it's like you're active workers in web technology today and i feel like it must it might get weird or old to to be like every time you're invited on something be like let's talk about the early the old days you know you're like why don't we talk about the new days too but in your case i don't feel bad about it at all because you actively research and write about the old days and that, you know, it's funny because you can't, I mean, you just can't write about CSS without talking about Eric Meyer and you can't write about web standards or early web development and design without Zeldman. So, and they have both sent me graciously corrections on, on which is another part about researching the web that's pretty great is that a lot of people are still around and active, you know, but they're, they're so essential, I think, to the, to the development of the web. And it's great to hear that they're kind of continuing with that um, because they really were a guide you know, for especially for web standards, we wouldn't be here where we are with browsers without them. So, yeah, absolutely. Pretty cool. But you dig up other names. I mean, I feel like in a way, everybody knows those fellas because they're just they're They were active bloggers and then and then in conferences and stuff, they're in the public eye. But in your research, you don't really care if somebody was in the public eye or not. In fact, it's almost more interesting the people that aren't. Yeah. yeah I, you know, so I've been running the newsletter um, for five years or so. And somewhere about half, you know, a couple years in, I, I made it almost a mission to try to uncover like, who are the, who are the voices of the web? Who's like started creating the web that we don't really hear about as much. Like one of the, one of the ones that I stumbled upon, her name is Louise Addis and she worked at Stanford 
um, in the early 90s, and she was responsible for the first website in the U.S., which was the Stanford Linear Whoa. Accelerator. And it's, you know, I had never heard that name. There's like two interviews with her ever. Um, she was very old by the time the web came around, so she's sadly not around anymore. But um, yeah, I mean, you, call, you stumble upon these names, and they were super critical to the early web, but, you know, no one really knew what it was even at that point. So there wasn't like a, a lot of mention, but you know, if, when we were talking about webmasters before, you know, if there's, if we can trace it back to the first webmaster ever, I think it would be Luis. So um, yeah, there's some really interesting names and people. Oh, that's fascinating. That, that well, have let's put a it. year on that. Do you have that? Yeah. So it's uh, 1992 is when it, you know, so, I mean, if we want to, if we want to do it quick, you know, 1989, Tim Berners-Lee comes up with the idea for the web um, by 1990, he's starting to build browsers and the first website, but he's working at CERN, which is, um, they're responsible for the chicken or the egg there, right? You got to have a web browser before you can have a website, but there's nothing yeah. for the browser to do if there's not a website. And... Well, they were almost like the same thing. You know, the idea was like clients and websites were going to be more integrated right? So he had a browser that could be used to create websites, which was kind of interesting. Um, ah, the read-write web, huh? Exactly. Um, but yeah, he was, you know, he was working at CERN. But it's, it took a, it took a, until probably 1991 for it even to break outside of like the, the hallways of CERN and into the general public. And you know, that's when it came over to the U.S. mostly through universities and stuff, um, in like 1992, 1993. Well, wasn't it? It was. I, I have the book over here somewhere. Um, weaving the web by Sir Tim Berners Lee. Um, but it was, it was like him and his intern who, and she just was kind of like, I guess good enough at code. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. like, I, I mean, but you know, he kind of came up with the idea and she kind of built the web browser and, you know, we don't hear about her that often, you know, <laughs> the, she, I mean, that's probably like, I'm sure you're noticing a pattern here a little bit. Yeah. There's, there's a few patterns that, uh, occur, but, um, you know, yeah, it's so just, Nic Nicola Pello the, is who you're talking about. And yeah, which she was, she wrote the first line mode browser, um, which basically like the one, the browser that Tim Berners-Lee created was for next computers. Do you, are you too familiar with next at all? That's like the whole Steve Jobs thing. Yeah. 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 Steve yeah. Jobs like got, you know, got booted from Apple, created his other new computer company next. And that eventually just like went back into Apple, but not what a lot of people line used mode it. Browser? Yeah. So a line mode browser was the first browser that like anybody could use, like regardless of their platform. So that was extremely important, obviously, because a lot of people were using uh, Linux at the time, oh. Windows or, you know, early Windows at that point. Um, so it was, it was like uh, text only, you know, it's very, very, very basic. But I don't, you know, you couldn't have, you couldn't have built a worldwide web with like a bunch of people using Next computers, right? They were like these $5,000 mm -hmm. Hunkering like, things, you know. I so, see. Yeah. so this so, was the yeah. command line, or whatever you would refer to it as back then. Yep. So it was it was extremely useful, and you know, I think that's how a lot of people very early on that's how they they got uh, onto the web. So line mode, it was text only, and you'd hit it. I, I it, it makes sense to me that it was academic in nature because there could be this information sharing type of thing that I'm sure would appeal to a researcher. You know, like, oh my gosh, what did 
what did such and such researcher at some university have to say about particles or whatever? Like, I want to, I want to know, I want to share that information, you know? And that's true, right? It was, it was academic in spirit at, at first. Yeah. And I, I don't even know if we've fully shaken off the metaphor of document to this day, but that's like how it was thought of and framed. It was like, it was a document that could be linked to other documents um, as a way of like linking and sharing information. Um, uh-huh. So it was much more about how can we distribute knowledge? How can we distribute information like in a way that is cataloged and categorized? And um, yeah, that was kind of the grounding and for the idea. And categorization was not the job of any particular website, right? Yeah, so that's that, that... not built into the system. I'll, I'll go on record. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. No. Um, no. So, so it, it, and the amount of information on the internet hits some crucial tipping point where at that, that it's like, well, crap, how do you find anything then? Right. That's probably. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, well, search engines came along pretty early, you know, um, if we're hinting at Google, that was later, that was end of, you know, 1998, I think. Um, but you know, one of the first uh, sites that Tim Berners-Lee built was like literally just, here's all the websites that exist organized loosely by categories that Tim had like come up with in his head, you know, like, so I think there was that impulse right away. It's almost, you know, one of the... <laughs> so it's all, it's like beer, uh, ninjas. Yeah. <laughs> I tried to write down all the burrito restaurants in my hometown and I can't even get through it. Yeah. Beer, I mean, burritos, and like, ninjas. that's the thing. It's like, it was on you to just like email, like just send an email to Tim and let him know about a website. And he would like roughly just put it in, in whatever order he thought. Yeah, absolutely. He can get it done <laughs> in an app, Sorry. you know? You like check your yeah. inbox in the morning and spend an hour on that. Like he would just do that and then get like all the websites for the day that were created. That's great. And interestingly, that's how Yahoo was originally famous too. It was more of a directory than it was a search thing, right? Yeah. And they just had like an army of people. Like, I, I, you know, I think Yahoo was doing some automated stuff, but I don't even know how much it occurred to them that you could just like automate a lot of this stuff. So what they did was they basically got an army of people to just like click around and find new websites and and catalog them, which was, I don't know, a really interesting project. It's almost like a shame that it went the other way in some ways. That would, uh, that would be my dream job in 1998, I think. Like I get paid to click on the internet and find weird stuff and then put it in a category. That'd be great. So. I remember it. But this is like 2007 or something. Remember the Jason Kalkanis guy, a little controversial mm-hmm. figure in internet stuff but he <laughs> yes. tried to do that he tried to bring the human powered directory search engine kind of thing back to the web with mahalo.com anyway oh, yeah. that was a weird so, but there's money How, where does yahoo get any money now i mean i'm asking we're just just peppering you with questions did they have ads for pepsi cola on there that early or did that so here's the thing about yes they had ads and like when you're when you're doing everything manually and you're curating and like you know the way that you're selling ads is the way that magazines used to sell ads. You would like just call up a company and they would request an order and they would put in a purchase for a large order of ads. And the appeal of Yahoo to advertisers was, are you a rock climbing company? Like we'll put you in the rock climbing category right up at the top. Here's an ad for it. So it was the curation actually lent itself to advertising really well. And that's how they made a lot of their early money for sure. I'm not saying it's right, but like, like, 
that was the doorstep, right, to the internet. That was like, okay, internet, what's on here? I mean, I remember I went, I moved to Japan in 2003, right? So this is kind of Google's now cool, right? But Five years in, of, it probably was really cool. All of Japan still used Yahoo. Like, and they would even just like, your Yahoo was the internet provider, like the broadband internet provider. What? Yahoo was, it is still to this day, I think. But like, uh, like Yahoo was a, they called the web, you know, going on Yahoo. Like you, in advertisements weren't like, go to this URL. It was like, search on Yahoo for this and click the first result like it was just uh it was wild so i don't know it just but it was like very much the doorstep of the internet you walked in and that's like that's a great place to put your ad i guess like yeah <laughs> hey this is the doorstep okay great I like the inherent targeting it reminds me of podcasts i mean today if you want to you know advertise to web developers you can advertise on web development podcasts thanks ads and I, I think keep in mind like the numbers were far larger back then because their metrics were much more imperfect right so they can give you like vague stats on who is coming based on server logs but in the same way that like magazine circulation is largely inflated um you know and that's how they sell ads there like it would the, the idea was more or less the same with the web so Double click, you know, and Google, who eventually Google bought and that made ads go down to like, you know, one cent per thousand views. Like that was much, much later. So they're selling large deals. They have entire sales teams that are going out and trying to find the right fit for the right content. It was much more. It was it was much more like that. Interesting. There was just more money in it because people didn't know there was no way to measure it. Oh, that's fascinating. Right. Like, you know, or just think, you know, I think how much money are they going to throw at a billboard? A lot, you know, at any given time. And to them, it's that's no different than, than putting, different. A, putting an ad on the web. I mean, they were called billboards for that reason. Stan, how, how many how many eyeballs are we going to get on this thing? Be like, hey, Sue, what do you think? A, a bit Like a billion? A yeah. Bill? I mean, just how that's many people are on the web. She says it's, it's a billion. It's probably everybody that's got a browser. And that's Pretty like, I think everybody. that's, you know, and so yeah, for sure. Well, and then like, I'm, I'm there refreshing. So I <laughs> jack up the page counter, the, you know, right. the, yeah. So it, the advertising model has drastically changed from, from now to then. So. This episode of Shop Talk Show is brought to you in part by Notion. Learn more and get started at Notion.so. It's this wonderful app that I couldn't possibly recommend more to use uh, for essentially writing documents, but it's so much more than that. It can be a place for your Kanban boards, for project planning and meeting notes and calendars and, and notes of any kind. You know, you know, a little side thing I see people doing a lot is like writing out a quick document, which will look beautiful because Notion looks great, making it public and then using it as like a job posting website, like a quick way to get a URL to share with the world that says, hey, we're hiring, that kind of thing. Their sharing model is so great. At any given page, and it can be nested as deep as whatever, you can kind of just mark as public, a little toggle switch, and then share that with anybody who wants to see it on the internet. 
Uh, and But what's cool about that is it doesn't have to be totally public. Another way you could do it is like type in an email address and invite somebody to the document, either just to see it or to have right access to it and collaborate with you on it. So it's a great collaboration tool in that way. For example, we have like a show calendar for this show and we invite collaborators, even from outside the Shop Talk Show organization to collaborate on the calendar, like our editor and our sponsors and stuff. So we can all have this shared understanding of what's happening with the show. Notion really enables workflows like that. It's so cool. Thanks for the sponsorship. Notion, that's notion.so. Well, the questions I asked, I mean, we can keep going in the history because this is, this is fascinating, but you've done a lot of this research. You've had the newsletter for five years. You've published this. You've organized this information. Obviously, you have a lot of it right at the tip of your brain. I asked you when we were lining this up, like what, like what, you know, now that what are the bigger takeaways? Now that you can see the whole picture, like you have it in your mind probably better than anybody else on earth does. What, what? What are the insights, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. I think like I had this thought that if I ever write, um, if I ever write a book (laughs) like specifically about this, what I would try to do is take one day or one week that are 10 years apart and just like take a look around at what's happening that day or that week on the web and use that as a basis of comparison. And when I do that think when I think through that, the dates that come to mind are 1995, the f- late fall, late uh, summer, early early fall of 1995, and then 10 years later in 2005. And the reason I picked those dates is because in 1995, what you have is it's the release of the first version of Internet Explorer, which like RIP, you know, um, okay, but it had yeah. a really great run <laughs> from 1995 until now. Um, and it's the Netscape IPO happens in that within two weeks of each other. Those two things happen. Um and then when you flash forward to, to 2005, that's the Web 2.0 conference. It's the first time that it's like really talked about in larger circles. So the, the idea is kind of coming around a little bit, but that's really where it comes out into the world is in 2005. And I think like right there gives you such an interesting picture of what the trajectory of things were, right? Because I think in 1995, that was when things picked up speed. Like as soon as Netscape IPO'd, people were like, oh my God, there's value here. Um, and mm. people rushed, rushed onto the internet following that. And all of a sudden it went from like this tool we're talking about, like very fun, but mostly for academics to a thing that you can like sell cars on. Right. I mean, that happened in, th- in essentially four years between 1995 and 1999 prior to the dot-com bubble. Like there's this massive rush to the web. And then in 2005, they try to reinvent the web again as like a place of community and, you know, trying to lower the barrier of entry and make it less. I mean, there's still a sort of a commercial element, but I think the the hmm. well-intentioned version of Web 2.0 is to try to like give back some of that data and that ownership to people and make it a much more like distributed community driven place. And so I think that's, that's an interesting trajectory for the first, you know, let's say decade or two of the web. And then if you look 2005 to 2015, there's probably all sorts of interesting things there too. Um, but I do, it, it is interesting to, I think, think about these things in arcs or these longer arcs, like what was the you know, what drove people to the web as, as it started, as it continued to grow, essentially. Fascinating. So 2005, big year. 
Was there anything particular you had in mind about 2005? You know, I think 2005 probably would have been the year that, like, Flickr, I don't know if it came out. Oh, but it was big. Like, that would be... Hmm. Yeah, Flickr, dig.com. Delicious was a big one at the time. Delicious, yeah. You know, I think... What what was interesting, I you know, I think what's cool about what what so web 2.0 I think gets wrapped up in this idea that it was like Ajax and the page never needs to refresh. And like when we think about right. web 2.0, we're like, that's what it was. In fact, I think the article on Ajax, that was 2005 as well. But that was just the technology. I think like the idea behind web 2.0 was that it was going to be this API driven web where everything talks to everything else and you keep your stuff in little like warehouses around the web. So it's like I put all my bookmarks in Delicious and I put my uh, pictures in, in Flickr um, and they can all talk to each other. And um, at the end of the, like then I'll have kind of like a, a complete social graph of my entire life that like maps one-to-one onto the web as well. And that was like the dream of web 2.0, which, you know, veered hard in different directions. But, um, I mean, I was, I was scrobbling my (laughs) iTunes plays onto last FM, you know? So yeah, that's, that's a great example, but you know, what's funny. Like, so you're, yeah, it's a joke, but also I think it points to, the big miss of web 2.0 was like, people don't want to scrabble. Like we do, everybody on this call does, and probably a lot of people listening, but once it hit mainstream, it's like, you know, people didn't want to futz around with APIs. They didn't want to futz around with like, how does this thing connect to this other thing? And so things started to centralize after that, really. Yeah, it's because people actually, in their heart, actually kind of want centralization. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Sort of, yeah. Well, it does seem like it was... I've, I've heard, like, this, like, you know... We said before the show we weren't going to talk about Web3. But I've heard it in the context of Web3. You know, it was like, you know, what's good about Web3, you know, and, and we'll just leave it at this. You know, it's like decentralizes. It's decentralizes payment off, you know, different things. Um, and, and I've heard people go like, that is exactly what Web 2.0 was, you know. But web, like you said, Web 2.0 just gets stamped with Ajax, you know, and that's like what it was, you know. But um, but like Web 2.0 was really about like, hey, create your stuff here. Like you get a login, user generated content, you know, but then it like quickly changed kind of. I, I don't know. I, I would love to hear your thoughts, but like Facebook and Farmville, you know, like that comp, that lethal combination. <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, I think what happened was, yeah, I, I, I really, I. <laughs> Without like being too grandiose about it, I think you can lay most of this at the feet of Facebook and be pretty accurate in that. You know, they <laughs> they come around in you know, five ish. And what do you call this movement? Is this like the the great siloization? You gotta have a cool name so for I, it. I, it wasn't conscious is the thing. I think Facebook booted up with the intention of delivering on web two point goals. And then by the time they got big enough that, you know, once they moved out of just colleges and they moved to like the general public, and by the time you're talking about like 20% of all people on the planet being on Facebook, which is like by like 2010 or so, like they just slammed the door on what we know. They're like, we're not doing that. Our new goal is to keep everybody on our site as long as possible. And everybody else, I think, shifted 
in that direction too, because that's where the money went. You know, that's where all the VC and stuff went. So it's almost like the de facto goal of websites these days is like, how can we retain users for as long as possible? And how can we bring them back? But that like, actually, it doesn't have to be. And it wasn't the stated goal of a version of the web that came before this. Um, so I think 10, 15 years later, essentially, we're still reckoning with what, what Facebook and other centralized platforms did. And that's where the backlash comes from. So the backlash is understandable. Like, why is Facebook own everything? You know, Google or any of these companies own everything about me. But... Um, you know, the, the solution, I think, is we don't know yet. But I think that's that's more or less what happened. I mean, but that's a decade ago, and we're still dealing with it now. Here's a little interesting overlay to all this, because I went to a meetup on Tuesday night with my coworker, Robert, did a little presentation on the history of um, ECMAScript and TC39 and stuff. Interesting to see. So we, we called out 1995, big year, IE. Um, Netscape IPO. That's wild. An IPO. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and then, <clears throat> but that's 1995, in which that J JavaScript didn't even wasn't even really a thing. Really. Yeah. ECMAScript one was 97. Two years later, then they're 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 actually like doing good. Like there's there's progress. ES two the next year, ES three the next year, and then it kind of in a way fizzles out. So that's 1999. There's almost a 10 year gap before we get ES five because ES four died, which was an evidence of their fizzling out. So between 99 and 2009, like a little bit of a similar gap here was in and it wasn't until 2009 where we get ES5 which is like when JavaScript really gets clearly good you know and, and useful and stuff it's just interesting there's a couple of actually really interesting things that happened in that time which points to like why like why that gap exists um the first was let's go back to IE and talk about you know I think IE's become the butt of a joke and the reason that or it did it was and the reason for that was because that was the period of time that IE the IE team was basically disbanded and Microsoft abandoned the project more or less like they gained ninety plus percent dominance over the browser market and then just kind of walked away. Yeah, uh, um, well that was easy. Stretches <laughs> arms. Job mission accomplished. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. They got sued for it. You know, it was a big deal. But yes, they were like, exactly. They didn't, they caught their own tail and then they didn't know what to do when they did. Um, so that, that was definitely in there. And then simultaneously, there was conversations happening inside of the W3C, which creates like the standards of the web. So like HTML and CSS are maintained by W3C. For those that don't know. Um, there were some conversations there happening where w, uh, contingent of the W3C wanted to go all in on XML. I don't know if you guys have been developing long enough to like have XHTML mm -hmm. in your backgrounds, but yeah. that's where that Strict. came from. Yep. Yeah. yeah, for a while we just assumed that was the way and that we'd get XHTML too, and it, that also looked kind of good, and then but it just kind of imploded or something. Yeah, so you know there was one contingent that was like wanted to basically go all in on XML, and one that wanted to go more all in on HTML and HTML what would eventually become HTML five, and so there was a split, mm -hmm. <laughs> like W three C split off, and half of them went one way, and then um, another organization was formed to to maintain Is that the. the what? 
WG or whatever. Yeah, the is that, what, yep. That's the what working that's group. That's the split. That's, it's literally still split. It's still, yes, it's still split, though they like actually work together these days. Um, but yeah, wow. that's what happened is that people, you know, they were like, we need to go. And what their point was is that we need to move in the direction of basically application development. Like we need to be creating software with the web. And this doesn't sound relatable at all. Go, keep going, though. <laughs> yeah. And then the it other side was like, very we need foreign. semantics. We need, you know, we need better definitions for websites. So that was the, the crux of the argument. Yes, it's very relevant. Well, who, which, who, who was who? who? Which one was the application side? So the application was H- like the what working group and HTML. So that's why it was like, let's extend HTML to do more. Um, yeah, yeah. The okay. video tag was supposed to be like the start of something, not the end of something. But, you know, that's where the all of those things came from. So, and then W3C was like, no, we need like a XML definition for every possible piece of metadata. And then the web, the web will be more readable to machines and it can be more easily like categorized. But I think we know which one won. You know, HTML is like the dominant... Um, the dominant technology these days for, I don't know, for better or worse. That's an interesting one. Yeah, it is. Cause it, you know, on the surface, it's easy to compare them and just be like, Oh, XML is the one that, you know, wanted you to close tags or whatever. <laughs> HTML didn't, but that's very, very trivial difference. It was more about philosophy than it was about specific semantics. or whatever. Yeah. Like machine readable versus like human readable basically, or like machine consumable. Um, yeah, interesting. I just added a a XSLT a style sheet XML style sheet to my RSS feed, which is a weird thing you can do. Um, and Wait, it's sees, interesting because who sees that? Well, now everyone sees it when if you click well, if my you just, feed. Yeah, you link yeah. to it. You know, you make it your own business to link oh, to that's it. That's interesting. Uh, okay, All right. but what's interesting is like. I have taken the thing for robots, the RSS feed, um, mm-hmm. the greatest technology of all time. But then Agreed. the I have, but I have taken the I've now made a human readable version of the XML, you know, and it's oh, it's weird. I don't know, weird. It's the the other way. That's the future that could have been, I guess. You know, like like we just we have these really garbage formats, and then we just style them. You know, there so. was a you know a, a weirdly very popular article on CSS tricks was like Dave, you just described styling and XML thing, which is mm-hmm. feed, feeds are almost always XML, right? That's isn't that yep. the case? What's yeah, the, they're derivative there's JSON of it. feeds too, but yeah. nobody uses them. Even that that's unfortunate. But yet, yeah. There, the the popular article I'm talking about was, you know how you can configure a server to just be like, well, if there's no HTML there, just puke out the, the, the contents, you know, the files and crap that are just sitting in there. So what is the browser, what does that look like to a web browser, you know? In a way, it's up to the web browser, but it's kind of up to the server, too. The server has some influence on like, ah, I guess I'll serve a page that basically looks like this. You can convince a server to apply CSS to that, if you'd like, through headers, and then style what that looks like. So if you have like, a, you know, an FT, it's it's a way to like style an FTP site, essentially, like I can't be bothered to, you know, to actually build a website that reads the directories and all that. I'm just going to put files in folders and 
essentially make a styled website that allows people to trawl through it without having to style any of the pages with HTML or anything. Really strange, but common, you know. Websites would do it that were like, you know, music archive websites or something. That's interesting. It, It makes me think about that this RSS feeds are, you know, it's called really simple syndication, the last S being my favorite one of them. The idea is take some content that's on this website and just give it away. Here it is. You know, there's not really a good way to charge for an RSS feed. Otherwise, it's not really a feed. It's just a lockdown format sitting behind a paywall kind of thing. I mean, if it's RSS, it's pretty much open. And that has some real Web 2.0 vibes. Yeah, It's essentially an API to content. Yeah, I think it's almost like the last message of of Web 2.0. Like, I think... It's based on the, you know, the the APIs that I was talking about before, like how they were going to connect to each other was going to be XML because JSON was not super popular at the time, um, probably just coming around, honestly. So yeah, two thousand nine really was the first. It looks like for JSON okay, yeah. being kind of solidified. That's late. Yeah, that's late. It's late to the game. So XML would have been the way that everything connected, and RSS was like the way to do that as you're saying, like for just everyday ordinary sites, you know, so Flickr's Mm -hmm. API would have its own XML definition, but RSS was like that for the masses. Right, right, right. I think I recall back in the Flickr days, it it was popular for a while, probably helped, you know, I think Rails helped make it popular and stuff too, that when when it made a data endpoint like that, you you could ask for JSON or XML. There was like pretty long period where, where, APIs were just like that. Like, what format would you prefer it in? We can do either. Yeah, you just change the extension. I think Rails had that as like a default feature. You just yeah, exactly. type .xml on the end. By day, I'm still, a, you know, just a developer. Um, and I have plenty of like legacy feeds that I work with, with, with clients and stuff where it's just like, wow, okay, you guys are still using the... The 2001, like, soap definition or whatever. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like, we're just going to figure that out. So, this stuff still powers things. XML almost dead. Like, if I was tasked to to interface with something over XML, I'd be like, oh, what? I'm going to have to literally, like, research uh, XML <laughs> yeah. parsing library. That is almost bygone knowledge. Uh, so, how do you... So, you're a web developer by trade. But like, do you, I, I feel like I remember you have like a journalism background or something. Is that a part of you or no? So I have a background in history um, and, like, history. and okay. research, right? So, you know, I went to school for it uh, and film um, uh, and I did some pretty major like research projects and thesis projects in both of those areas. Um, and then, <laughs> I don't know, this is probably pretty common, you know, but... I made websites on the side during college to make money, and then that continued to be the way to make money, and and that's how, that's like what I followed. But almost as soon as I started doing that, I was like, I want to do this History of the Web project. So I probably have been thinking about it for like a decade, and it took many years just to even make the first step with it, for sure. Um, No, I mean, like, I I just want to say it's like so well-researched, every article, and like it feels like you have just endless content. I'm just, I don't know. I'm looking at this one. 
the first thing that was ever sold online was a pizza, right? Oh, uh, seriously? That's amazing. Well, so Hacker, Hacker News had some words about that. It's I provocative. I, the, it's online, but it's really the web. I'll just make that disclaimer right here. And the first oh, thing okay. sold on the web was pizza. On the web. Okay, Sorry, Hacker News. Oh, yeah. I'm sure people sold all kinds of services. Wink over yeah, exactly. uh, <laughs> yes. Usenet and yes. stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah I see. I see. But uh, but yeah, this is from a a, a web form. But um, anyway, I just and I like your you you research things. It's well done. If I was to do this, it would be like, <laughs> hey, here's a thing I found. Cool, like and subscribe. You know. But yours is very uh, well researched to the point. Like Evan Williams and Boing Boing and Morning Brew are like citing your work. I, I think that's really cool. So. Yeah, it's been, I mean, yes, thank you. I appreciate that. You know, I think research is the part that's fun for me. I wouldn't do it if it wasn't, you know, and then like the posts are like that, the symptom of the research more so than anything else. Um, you know, so that's the part that I never wanted to lose. That was my favorite part about like, you know, just in history and being in that kind of field and in academia was just that approach and research approaches and things. Um, I've been really fortunate that yes, people have shared my work and also like people have reached out to me. I've gotten to talk to a lot of people and to journalists and to all sorts of people about the early web or, you know, just evolving technologies and stuff like that. Um, so people are really gracious with their time with me, I have found, which is just so fascinating and interesting. Um, and that has helped a lot, but a lot of it is just like digging through, you know, web archive, essentially, like I click on a link, you know, I find a link, that link is dead. So now I hop into the web archive and find the dead version of that link, like the last time that it existed. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because like this is, it's, it almost feels like a history that people would be like, oh, why is this so hard to tell? Yeah. <laughs> because it's yeah. like the web, isn't that automatically, shouldn't that be easy to, to find? But yeah. It really isn't, right? It really and isn't. So thank yeah. gosh for the internet archive because, you know, your average link, that's just a couple of years old has a, in my experience, a very high chance of being dead. Yep. Yeah. Uh, extremely high chance, which means it's also like not findable through search. So that's often the hardest part is like just finding like that first jumping off point. Like what is the blog post that Zeldman wrote in 1997 that like actually still has a live URL? Like, you know, there are a couple of people that are like holding it down and like really still preserving their, Original URLs, so they're like crawlable. Sure. And then I just have no incentive to make that stuff searchable. Once it's off the web, they're like, yeah, we don't, we're not going to help you get there. Oh, exactly. Oh, yeah. You know, they have, they do like to Google's credit, they have some tools for like, I can actually search everything that came just before 2000, let's say, or something. And they make that pretty easy. Um, But yeah, if it's not like indexable on the web, then they have no interest in it. Um, But like, yeah, maybe somebody wrote a post about Web 2.0 in 1995 or in, in 2005, which contains like 25 links and every single one of them is dead. So now I'm just like hopping through each of those links and just discovering like, can I find a version of this and what other links do I get from there? Um, which is really hmm. interesting. Like, you know, it's the web doing what it's doing best, which is just like linking out to various things. And it often works for sure. Right, and then it's your like who who said that? You know, hopefully yeah. it's hopefully it's obvious, right? But not every one of those links probably has a about page or right. Like, yeah, totally. Or like, what do they do? Um, I mean, although you'd be surprised how many like 
real pioneers of the web just like just have regular old LinkedIn pages. You know what I mean? Because they're just still working. They're still uh, just I doing suppose. the yeah. doing the thing. So yeah, I mean, um, yeah, digging this stuff up is is really hard. And you know, the part that interests me the most these days is what we were talking about at the beginning, which is just who are the people that just like haven't really been talked about in this history. I need to get that on record because like in the next five years, they might just disappear entirely. Like I might be able to find some smidgen of a mention, but they're going to be gone completely. So like part of me is like, I know enough now to know that I'm, you know, I am a historical record that is used in certain places when people do this kind of research. So I need to, you know, take that seriously, basically. Very, very interesting. Speaking of those old time people that just have regular old LinkedIn pages, there's Hakem, did I say it right? Hakem William Lee? <laughs> I think so, yeah. Yeah, who's, who's, was, you know, inventor, credited as CSS. one of the inventors. Yeah, indeed, which was not a day one innovation of, of, of the web, especially not in 1995, right? It took a couple of years at least to even have it be a glimmer in the eye of the web. Yep. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, for, for the Shop Talk Show listeners in particular, I think that's interesting that, like, you know, you say the web and it's like almost like the order of it is like HTML and then CSS and then JavaScript, like in our heads, you know, in some loose hierarchy. Yeah. Um, but it's, that's not the order it came in. It was actually HTML and then JavaScript actually came a little bit earlier and then CSS. Um, and it wasn't yeah, really so it's until... like a view component. <laughs> so, <sorry. Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> that's how they got their order, actually. It was yeah, just historical. Yeah. It's, it's unbelievable. Order. I love we it. We can yeah. set the record straight now. That's the proper <laughs> order of things. It's just in, in historical order. Um, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think, yeah, CSS was like 1997. There were plenty of thoughts about it prior to that and like proposals going around. And there's some there's a, some really interesting articles about the, what those proposals are. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's very interesting because if you were building in like 1993 or four or five, like just kind of like, well, whatever the browser says a heading three is like, maybe I can use some tables, which people used or center tags or little mm -hmm. font size tags and stuff like that. There was some flexibility there, but by and large, it was like, whatever, Whatever the browser says, that's what we're going to do. That was like early web design, essentially. Right. Okay. So let's hone in on this. This would be interesting, right? Because there's plenty of people we've talked to. I'm sure you're perhaps one of them or, or whatever that said, when I started web design, <laughs> uh, we use tables for layout. And I've always found that funny and interesting. It's just kind of an old timer thing to say. But I'm like, I've been around the web a long time and I didn't. I did mm. not start laying out websites with tables only because I generally started with WordPress, and I don't think WordPress ever went there. I think by the time they were relevant, they were doing everything with um, with other CSS. It didn't mean the layout mechanisms were great, because what it meant to leave tables was using floats and crap, which now is regarded at, with almost just as much disdain as tables. So we've... <laughs> yeah. It's been an interesting thing. But let's say you said that. What is that... When does that mean you started? If you were laying mm. out stuff with tables but still obviously at css because we're not talking about people who were designing websites in 96 and 7 you know i mean maybe we are but there was a longer period that you're probably talking about you know yeah 1999 2000 like early 2000s when that is still like yes css is around but it's important to remember that like css 1.0 was not 
the CSS of today. You know, there were no, no right. There was very little things there. It was really just about you know, like some font and stuff and some color stuff and and things like that. But nothing like certainly nothing that addressed layout. So yeah, I mean, even let's see. You know, I think in the late '90s that would have been the most popular way. To there's a there's a book I forget what the book was that like actually advocated for table based design. It was like the book that set everybody on that path to to begin with. I'm trying to find out. If you remember this guy's name? Was it Dave Weiner? Is that who it was? No, um, he's the RSS guy, right? Yeah. Um, um, uh, but he wrote an article. Uh, the web is broke, and I broke it, or whatever. Yeah, yes, um, he recently wrote that to apologize for his. Uh, oh, interesting. I feel like this was the, uh, much later than that, not to confuse the issue, but there was like a uh, a, a Rachel Andrew book, I think, that kind of like re reinvigorated some some use of tables, you know, like speaking about their virtues. But it wasn't necessarily tables. It was that you could use CSS to emulate table layout. Well, that was like the work that came, you know, I think... Rachel was part of that work that came directly after, which was like, we now need to actually go back and like erase three or four years of knowledge that we've just been, uh, you know, right, making right. like be- best practices at the time in some circles were like just use table based layouts because they work, they are reliable. Um, they do work. And so I think Rachel was like a definitely part of that effort of like, no, we need to, to go. I mean, she remains part of that effort, but even at the time was for you sure know, reversing that a little bit. Um, so, no yeah. wonder she's so almost historically. You could be like, I wonder why, you know, Rachel's so involved with grid. I wonder if it's because it's like, wow, I spent so much time thinking about layout in the past that, like, now that this is actually good, I'm going to make damn sure the web uses it. You know, it's it's worth a shout out for Rachel. She has a site webhistories.org where she's actually working on some of this stuff as well. Oh, nice. Um, so it's an interest of hers, and we've gotten to chat a few times. But yes, absolutely, I think. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's it was a it was a big project. I mean, you guys had Jeffrey on, and you know, mm-hmm. I think he was part of that work too. Is just like we need to really like educate an entire an entire community, like retrain them. And so I think when you hear people say like, "Oh, I used to do table based layouts," they not only remember that part, but then they remember having to unlearn and relearn like a whole new methodology within you know three years, essentially. So. Yeah, it's really, uh, it was a big shift for sure. Yeah, it's interesting what the the mistakes were, not so much in the technology itself, but that like how you told people to use the technology. Yeah, interesting. You know, I know Eric has some like like light regrets about the his reset, which is still just almost mm-hmm. certainly the most popular one in use. Not the fact that the reset exists, but that it had like an outline zero or outline none in it <laughs> right which was uh, had some accessibility issues um wow <laughs> yeah i wonder i should ask him to his face one of these days like why not do it <laughs> why not do an a Meyer reset 3.0 like you have yeah, so yeah. much brand power behind it like just do it maybe he just doesn't want to maybe there'll be some new mistake that he then has to atone for in 10 more years you know? <laughs> maybe you can do it you can just do it in like five lines now right we're I think we're getting better with those things. That's true. There is some little, little small one, but I saw a big ass beefy one the other day and I looked all the way through it and I was like, I largely agree with this. It's doing <laughs> lots of stuff, but I think a lot of this stuff is very sensible and is much longer than, than the Meyer reset was. 
anyway, wow, we have gone on a, a weird a weird thing here. You wrote one fun. thing. Yeah, it certainly is. There, uh, about fads and, and trends and things, but I didn't quite quite know what you meant. What did you have in mind when you're like thinking of fads and trends that have died during this yeah, history I think, of Yeah, so I think what's interesting is that like it's easy to even something like uh you know react has a, a huge community now it's probably going to stick around but like even fads that feel that seismic actually do come and go and then you never hear about them again and people kind of forget that they existed so like one example i have is and i've done so much research into this is this idea of push technology um was going to like transform the web and the idea was like there was a company with hundreds of millions of dollar valuation that the whole idea was that they would have a screensaver that updated with news and like websites can like push live news updates to your screensaver. And then the business model fell apart because they were like, nobody sits in front of their screensaver. But like nobody even thought about that part. They just. Oh, were, yeah, that was the that was the <laughs> point is that you're not there. Right. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, their business model fell apart there. But um, there were other ideas that like, you know, and Microsoft really led some of this, I think, too, like that the idea wasn't but that. That was a Safari feature. <laughs> that was a feature of Safari. Was it? That, like Which must your have screensaver been. would show news or something. I'm, yeah, it was a big idea. It was like. It was, it was this idea that, like, you weren't going to visit websites. Like, websites were going to come to you in some way. And there was a whole ecosystem and large, huge, huge, huge companies that came around to support this. And, like, it's actually hard to find, you know, information about it these days. Um, but, oh, like, yeah. people were the, betting the future Safari on it. RSS Visualizer. Uh, I think it would – when Safari got its reader mode or RSS mode – then the screensaver could hook into that and yoink that in. Um, yes, weird. Anyway, but but it's not surprising that somebody created a whole business about it. You know, no, I mean, for sure. So, and that the company yeah. I'm talking about is Pointcast, um, and they were around for a while. But like, yeah, so that's like one that you know it was literally seismic. I mean, like Wired had articles about how this was the future, and like everybody needs to go all in on push technology, and it literally evaporated within two years. Um, so that's like one example that was bouncing around in my head for sure. Speaking of stuff that evaporated in like two years, any other examples (laughs) or, or I don't know the dot com crash, right? That like absolutely shaped the web, right? Like, yeah. What, what, what's the story there? Why'd that happen? Tell me why. So I can (laughs) avoid it. We got a few more minutes. Yeah. Yeah. A few more. Um, yeah. The dot com crash. I, you know, I think. I'm, that was going to be, it may still be at some point, like a next chapter that I'm writing. And then it just veered me off into so many different directions that I had to take some time with it. But, um, you know, essentially uh, the commercial potential of the web was realized like all at once. And there was, <laughs> it's so hard to say all this stuff without just mirroring exactly what's going on right now. But a rush of venture capital came in to try to capitalize on it without actually stopping to think about what the underlying value of all these companies were. Um, so like one of the biggest ones was like this company Webvan, which is, you know, more or less like this idea that you can, it's like Amazon, honestly, like you can just buy anything from Webvan and they would ship it to you. But this was prior to like the logistics operation of Amazon being in place or this being like more common. But the, 
you know, they never actually stopped to think about how they were going to do it. So they like kind of stored things in warehouses, but they kind of didn't. And they, you know, it was more about how can we build this cool website than it was about like the actual hard stuff. Um, and so all these companies kind of like rushed to fill this gap. Literally companies would change their names to add .com to their name just to get like an extra hundred million or a couple hundred million from VCs. Mm. And it became that easy to, to gather all this capital together. And then it became very negative sum. Like you had to convince other people to like rush in and, and invest in these things too. And is that like a market saturation, uh, like a surge of websites now, very niche, very like, you know, um, you know, this is the blog for dogs. This is the, mm -hmm. the you know, not just the grocery store, it's the pet food store, you know, I don't know. Like, I think like what happened there was what happened there was, you know, eBay became successful and Amazon was actually already successful at that point. And so like what people can do in a pitch meeting was be like Amazon, but for pets or eBay, but for like uh, cars or something, you know, and Amazon so was still like, four books back then kind of right and Amazon was still no they were they were ticking up but they were like they were successful enough that you can point to them as an example but they weren't like the giant you would necessarily have to take on like they were still mm -hmm. just a competitor um so I think that became a shortcut is like what we're going to do is we're going to create Amazon but for every possible niche interest and that's how they got money you know so yeah I mean there's this whole culture that that grew up around it where uh, again, very similar to today, like, you know, you got William Shatner, like shilling out Priceline, right? Because it's, they want to create yeah. excitement around these companies. Um, and, uh, and it worked. And I mean, I just, I, the, the economy literally wasn't able to sustain it. It was just too much money, like flowing into this one spot, which had no business model. I mean, these companies were making very little money if at all. Mm -hmm. So isn't it feel good in a way? Like it sucks when people lose their jobs and money disappears and stuff. But when the, when it crashes, sometimes they call it a correction because it's like it's the market is coming back to reality. Right? Isn't that so I in mean, a way, uh, if you had a business yeah. that had a real actual business model where the value of it was correct, you'd probably be okay. Yeah. And some companies did survive, and I think the ones yeah. that survived had that. You know, my pushback on that is like, this is exactly the same time that like 401ks were becoming a lot more popular and people were getting into day trading like on individual levels. And so mm. there's lots of people that lost houses and 20% of their savings or, you know, people just right, lost. Because they were just investing, not they, just they had investing. nothing to do with the, the company. Yeah, yeah I know. I like personally know a, a Dellionaire who got rich from Dell here in Austin and they bought the biggest house you could closest to downtown, you know, and then mm -hmm. just squandered day trading, you know, just lost their shirt. And so that was the thing back then. You make money, you day trade. It'll just it'll just be forever, right? That companies have a value that's not exactly attached to reality, you know? I mean, have you seen Linktree? It's insane. Whoa. And if I could connect it like real quick, like one interesting thing is I've talked to people that were around right there, like right at 1999. And you don't know it now, like everyone now would say like, oh, it came out of nowhere and everyone thought it was going to keep going up. But if you talk to enough people from that time, like they knew and people knew and it was almost like an open secret at the time. And it was all about like, how can I stay in long enough to make money, but get out right at the last minute? 
again, like I think some of that's happening now. And if there, there was skepticism then, I guess is my point. And there, it's healthy skepticism, I think. So, yeah, um, plenty of people have talked to me about that, though, and just being aware of it and pulling out money early, for instance, and stuff like that. Uh, legal disclaimer, this is not financial yeah. advice. It's on my Twitter bio. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. I need to, I don't know. The Chris Gore investment strategy should be like pennies buried in jars out in my back freaking yard because nothing I've ever done in the history of having disposable income has panned out well at all. I'm watching the anti-advice. I'm with you. I've got a bookshelf full of mangas. Pretty sure that's going to pay off. <laughs> yeah. Still hoping these beanie babies are going to turn around yeah. and die. <laughs> going to be really good. So, well, man, this was super educational. Mm-hmm. Wow. Happy to hear that. The first one, first episode of Shop Talk ever like that. So, appreciate you uh, coming on. Uh, I guess, yeah, I mean, this is, uh, for, I'll, I'll say just capping this, like, it's the history of the web.com mm-hmm. wonderful resource uh, i think weekly-ish news right here weekly newsletter yep. yeah a couple week newsletter and uh, i feel like every single one is is has an, a nugget of gold so thank, thank you, you for writing that but uh, jay for people who aren't following you and giving you money how can they do that yeah so his, the history of the web.com that's the place it's got my Twitter too, which is J J Y underscore Hoffman. Um, if I'm not super active there, but I am there. Um, I am, I, as I said, I'm director of development at a web agency. It's reactive. Um, so if you're interested in building uh, a website or anything like that, you can let us know. Um, yeah. Other than that, uh, yeah. History of the web, sign up please. Um, and yeah, second, first and third Tuesday is my schedule right now. I try to get a post out. Uh, with some plans, I think, for some time in the near future. Awesome. Well, thank you. And uh, thank you, dear listener, for downloading this in your podcast of choice. Be sure to start heart favorite up. That's how people find out about the show. Follow us on Twitter for 16 tweets a month at shoptalkshow.com or at shoptalkshow only. Uh, and then we have a youtube.com slash shoptalkshow for videos. Uh, and, of course, join us in the Discord, patreon.com slash shop talk show. Chris, you got anything else you'd like to say? Shoptalkshow.com.